Hello and welcome to Things We Said Today, our weekly podcast about anything and everything to do with the Beatles as a group, as solo artists, past, present, and things to come if we can find out about them. I'm Alan Cozen, the author of The Beatles From the Cavern to the Rooftop and Got That Something, How the Beatles' I Want to Hold Your Hand Changed Everything. And I am joined by my two regular co-hosts, Ken Michaels, who you know as the host of the syndicated Beatles radio show, Every Little Thing. Hello, Ken. Hey, Alan. Hey, everybody. Right. And Steve Marinucci, uh, the Beatles reporter extraordinaire for Billboard.com, Variety.com, Axis.com, Goldmine, and various other places, and also the author of the book, Meet a Monkey, Davy Jones. Hello, Steve. Hello, Alan. Hello, everyone. Right. Hello, Ken. <laughs> Hi, Steve. <laughs> and um, we are going to continue our discussion that we began last week with Kid O'Toole, the author of the Deep Beatles blogs on Something Else Reviews and um, the songs we were singing about sort of deep Beatles tracks um, and things that people sometimes skip or miss or don't know quite as well as the hits. And um, last week we discussed her uh, five selections of Beatles tracks that she thinks are unappreciated. And this week we will move on to the solo tracks. Um, But first we have a number of news items including some news about Ringo. Which of you wants to begin with that? Well, I guess I will, since I wrote the the story. Um, Ringo released his um, latest uh, music video this week, for or last week, for Give More Love. And I did a, a little story about it, uh, talking about the making of it. And that's and, in Billboard, uh, Billboard.com? That's, in, that's on Billboard.com, yeah. I... I Got some information from Brent Carpenter, the videographer for it, um, and it was fun talking to him actually because he told me a few things that probably you wouldn't know, um, like the the little wine box that that Ringo uh, uses at the in the video. He said that uh, the way they found that was in a hotel gift shop, and Brent said he he said you know that would be fun to put in a in a video and Ringo said well think of a way to do it and he did and uh, they also I love the way by the way that they use the black and white graphics on the on the band those were uh, rehearsal videos by the way but um, I love the way they did that it made the band look really sharp it's a great little video and it's on it's on YouTube if you haven't seen it already Ringo also announced that. Uh, he would announce the plans for his uh, annual uh, Peace and Love uh, birthday celebration is going to be um, at the Hard Rock Cafe in Nice, France during their upcoming European tour. Um, and, of course, this uh, between now and the 1st of October, they're going to be in Europe, and then they're they're gonna they're gonna alternate between Europe and the U.S. He's gonna do one date uh, at Atlantic City before they go to Europe, and then later in the year they'll they'll be doing a bunch of shows in the U.S. with uh, Graham Goldman and um, Colin, Colin Hay. Hay. And one other thing that that I asked him that uh, was uh, I think 
somewhat newsy was I said, uh, is there a chance that you guys are going to record any of these shows? And he said, when they change lineups is when they do recording. And he said he belie- he believes that they will do some recording during one of these shows or during some of these shows this year. But he did not know, obviously. I mean, there are no specific plans to, to release anything yet. But that was um, that was something that uh, was newsworthy out of that uh, story. So that he, that he wasn't we, well, signed you, on to film any of them. Yeah, he will be. He will be filming. He said that 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 yeah that they that they film like I said they film when they change you know when the when the band lineup changes. So and he will be filming, but what they do with it uh, or he said uh, the quote I actually have and I'm looking straight at it it says I hope we'll be shooting he seemed pretty confident though that they will so it'd be nice to see a, a new DVD uh, live DVD because it's been a while right now Ringo's put out several live DVDs of the all-stars and their different lineups but the last one that I recall was live at the Ryman and that's right. that's several years ago already. Well, they also had the they also had the access video uh, from um, uh, I think it was Fort Worth. He said that, and that won't probably that probably will not be released. Hmm. Uh, so, and there's also a possibility, and and I'm and I'm probably going out on a limb by saying this that uh, there may be a second show in Atlantic City. Maybe uh, apparently there's there was a listing that. Uh, uh, dropped in on the Atlantic City uh, on the website with Atlantic City, and then it was taken off. So there may or may not be a second show coming to Atlantic City for those of you in that area. So you might want to keep an eye out if you live there. Right, and that's the start of the tour. So that's anyone start, that goes, that's, that's right. That's the that's June second is the one scheduled show. Yeah. So if, it'll if be you go to that show. You're going to know the the set list. That's mm-hmm. right. Uh, that's right that's before right. anybody else that's and right you can celebrate the 51st anniversary of the u.s release of sergeant pepper there we go there, there we go so so ken did you go to record store day no i did not alan <laughs> but um we didn't have any news items about record store day in our last show because there were no beetle or solo beetle releases however I since learned that there were a couple of releases that are of interest to some Beatle fans because um, uh, Harry Nilsson's album, Pussycats, which was produced by John Lennon, was reissued on vinyl for Record Store Day. Mm -hmm. That's from the label called Real Gone Music. And there was a a George Martin release called Beatles to Bond and Bach. And um, it includes several things. A piece that was written by George Martin, which is called Theme One, which he apparently was commissioned to write for BBC Radio One. Mm-hmm. There's something in there called the Bond Suite, which uh, includes different arrangements of the James Bond theme mixed with uh, kind of a groovy version of uh, Live and Let Die. <laughs> and there's something called the Beatles Suite, which has orchestral sounds of Beatle classics. And I think you have song titles there, or one of you does of what uh, is covered there. Uh, but this comes from the label called Music on Vinyl, and uh, they made a limited number of 2,500 copies that are individually numbered, and they're all on 180-gram blue vinyl. Mm-hmm. So were you saying, Alan, uh, this is before we started the show, that this 
this might have been a, an early release back in the 70s? I thought it might have. Um, I, I'd read that it was released in 1974. Um, okay. But I don't remember seeing it. So, uh, you know, could have missed it easily. Uh, mm. I'm going to I'm gonna have to try and find a copy of that now. Okay. I didn't go hmm. to Record Store Day either. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at the information on the Record Store Day website, and it says... Uh, exclusive release. I I don't recall hearing of this, but then you know, what can I say? But uh, it doesn't. The title doesn't ring a bell with me. Mm, not uh, to me either. Yeah, I'm. Uh, the interesting thing is that I'm like most of the most of the music on here is is Beatle related, really. You know, because he's got the they've got the Beatle suite with the Pepper tracks and the Yellow Submarine suite with the with the Yellow Submarine tracks. So. Um, well, and, and then, and then he did actually, uh, you know, die a couple of years ago, so it can't be a new right. recording, right? Um, right. So, and, and I doubt that there's that much unreleased George Martin. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure anything he recorded, he probably would have released. So, mm-hmm. uh, my impression, you know, looking at it, was that it was a compilation of of things. Probably. But, um, but yeah. That didn't, and then, and those tra- the none of those, maybe except for maybe theme one, and maybe Elizabeth and Essex, came from the the Martin box set. I don't remember. I I, I don't recall them being on the Martin box set. Mm-hmm. So, but anyway, okay. Okay, so Ken, go. you were also telling us about the Eric Clapton documentary and its various spinoffs, which have some Beatles content. Yeah, there was a documentary that was um, just programmed on PBS channels recently called Life in 12 Bars, and it's being released on DVD and Blu-ray, and there's also going to be a two-CD compilation that spans Eric's career, and also a four-LP version plus digital formats. And um, I did get to watch this documentary when it was on PBS. Did either of you guys watch it? No, no, I haven't. I have a uh, digital file of it, but I haven't had a chance to watch it yet. Well, it has its merits, although I I did have one major problem with it. It did um, cover very heavily the beginning of Eric's career, his childhood and and all the bands he was in from uh, the Yardbirds through uh, Blind Faith and Derek and the Dominoes, obviously Cream and John Mayall. And um it's it's really interesting. I mean, it's very thorough. It goes through those years very well. It deals a lot with Eric's uh, drug problem and alcohol problem and his infatuation with Patty Harrison. And um, the only problem I had with it was it's kind of similar in a way to living in the material world, the documentary, because after, say, the early 70s, it just kind of whips through the rest of his career. So for anyone that grew up on a lot of the the 70s music of Eric Clapton, like I Shot the Sheriff or Lay Down Sally or any of those, all those albums, 461 Ocean Boulevard and Slow Hand and Another Ticket and any of those albums, if they meant anything to you, they really breeze right by that whole part of his career. Mm-hmm. And um, they talk about the death of his son. But um, it is kind of well done in, in a lot of ways. I was very surprised. One thing that I didn't really know about Eric was that he apparently was very close to Jimi Hendrix. And um, he had said something to the effect when, when Jimmy died, it didn't upset him that he died. It just upset him that he didn't go with him. Because at that time, he was really depressed. 
Right. And uh, I think a lot of that had to do with, you know, his love for Patty and how to deal with it and dealing with drugs and alcohol. And um, so it's it's kind of depressing in a way watching this documentary, but it's also uplifting to see how he comes out of it. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it's certainly worthwhile seeing this documentary. And um, I do know that the the uh, the music compilations will actually include the Beatles recording of While My Guitar Gently Weeps, since Eric is on it. It's kind of surprising because you rarely ever see a Beatles recording on another release right. of some kind. It also has Badge, which, of, co- of course, um, George wrote with Eric Clapton. And there is a recording of My Sweet Lord on there, although I don't know if that's from the concert for Bangladesh or from live in Japan. So it does have three Harrison-related uh, tracks on there, and it's all coming out May the 25th. The videos and, and the audio. Okay, that sounds good. And I think there were also a bunch of books coming out, and Steve well, has I, a list of those. Yeah, actually, actually, there were a couple of events that I, I wanted to mention first. Um, okay. There's a, a Beatles White Album 50th Anniversary uh, International Symposium happening in November at Monmouth University in uh, New Jersey in West Long Branch. It's going to feature a bunch of Beatles scholars, uh, including Mark Lewison, who's the keynote speaker. It's going to have Walter Everett, John Kovac, uh, Tim Riley, and Robert Rodriguez, among others. Ken um, Womack. Ken, Ken and that's Ken. That's Ken Womack's. Yeah, that's Ken Womack's uh, University. So he's also involved, and it's it, that should be that should be a lot of fun. That should be a, a, a very interesting and. Um, they have information on their website uh, uh, about that. So if you're if you're interested, uh, you know you can look that up. Um, it says that there it will also include uh, live acts and uh, uh, live acts as well. So, but that's gonna uh, you know that's gonna be one of the one of many 50th anniversary white album things going on. But uh, that should be a that should be a big deal. That should be a big deal. Another white album. Uh, uh, related thing is that the White Album collection that is currently at 1,987 copies is now at the KMAC Museum in Louisville through August 5th. Uh, Alan, you said you've seen that. Yeah, um, yeah, and I interviewed this is a this is an art piece really by an right. artist named Rutherford Chang, right. and I believe it's called We Buy White Albums. <laughs> Um, and he, uh, you know, he, he's a young guy, but growing up, um, his parents used to play the white album and he got fascinated with it and he started buying up as many copies as he could. And, um, what his installation, it's an art installation. What the installation is, is basically he gets a room and sets it up as a record store. Um, It's just that the only thing in the record store, you know, in the browser bins on wall display, you know, where where you go into, used to go into a record store and there'd be like, you know, albums all along the walls. They're all the white album. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, and basically one of the things that fascinated him is what shape these white albums were in. I mean, I think he's particularly interested in 
original pressing white album so that they have the number and he has a catalog with all the numbers he has and and everything and uh you know but um you look at some of them and there are some where people have done drawings of their own there are some where people put their name on it you know you know the way people the way people treat albums who don't you know realize that albums are you know what they are like i i've never written my name on an album okay you know it's like <laughs> this yeah. thing has to be in as good condition as it can possibly be but apparently there are millions of people who don't believe that and um, rutherford chang has a lot of their white albums another thing that rutherford chang did as part of his project was that he got a uh, a recording set up in a turntable I and mean, when you go into the, the exhibition the white album is playing naturally um, and it's not going to be the CD. It's going to be one of the LPs in his collection. So, you know, there'll be some clicks and pops and things. But what he did was he, rec- he I don't know if he's recorded everyone that he's gotten or, or how much he's, you know, when he gave up recording them. But he began recording a whole lot of the White Albums he had um, over each other. You know, so so he had a multi-track recorder, and first he would do one, then he would do the the next one, starting it in sync. And because it's a an analog turntable, it goes out of sync, you know, fairly quickly. So while it starts out unified, um, by maybe ten minutes in, it's a complete mess. You know, you can <laughs> you can sort of hear the resonances of the songs in there, but but so it's an audio project too. I'm not sure whether he is still doing that. Um, he did have a uh, two disc album LP pressed with the recording that he made and uh, also overlaid some of the graffiti on various covers for his cover. So it's not actually a completely white cover. It's got stuff all over it. But uh, how, does he, how does he keep people from taking those albums? Well, I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You know, when I went in there, there weren't a lot of people in there, and he, he just, I suppose, could keep an eye on them. But I suppose someone could do that um it's yeah i don't know why put this idea in people's heads steve <laughs> no I, I, i'm not trying to i'm just uh having no, I've seen a, the a logical question yeah i I've, mean maybe they have some security I, I i i never asked him it didn't it didn't occur to me but they they must have some sort of security for it right right but yeah, I mean, the, the the whole idea of of doing that as an art installation, that's almost something that Yoko would dream up. You know, absolutely, it's true. It's, it and and that's really the cool thing about it. You know, that he that he came up with this on his own. You know, yeah. The but, fact that it's a plain white cover, you can do so much with it. That's right. I mean, if he did the same thing for Sergeant Pepper, <laughs> there's not so much you can write on the front cover of Sergeant Pepper. You know, so. Uh, but with white, nothing but white, you know, the yeah. sky's the limit. You know? right. right. And it, and it invites, it invites a, well, I mean, the, the cover itself, is, it, you know, as we've talked about before, the cover itself was basically kind of an art thing anyway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah it was done that, by a, a recognized artist, Richard Hamilton, who was, uh, you know, pretty well known at the time. He is, really still is. So, yeah, you've got an art piece about an art piece. Right, right. <laughs> it's so that's meta. Pretty, I, uh-huh. It is. It is. That's pretty. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty amazing. Mm. Anyway, 
Okay, so there's that. You, you have any other shows, or do you want to get? Into I the well, books? I also I also have the I also have the fact that they've put the uh, theater listings for Yellow Submarine online okay. at uh, yellow film, and also uh, just a a small a news item. Um, I saw uh, Bill Harry actually mentioned this online, and I confirmed it that uh, George Martin's widow Judy. Burglars broke into her home, but police arrived and they escaped. And she apparently was not hurt, but uh, it was kind of she locked herself uh, in uh, a bathroom and and uh, they got away. So, uh, but uh, that's kind of that was kind of a scary thing. Uh, but she's apparently okay. So, but I do have I do have a bunch of books to mention that are coming out between now and the end of the year. And there's as usual, this is around the time of the year when we start hearing you know books later on in the year. Um, the one I did see a couple of mentions about on Facebook is one called Visualizing the Beatles. It's kind of a graphic novel of chart of charts about the Beatles, going from you know from Beatlemania all the way through to Abbey Road and. You know, having there's all sorts of stuff in here. It's called a graphic history of the world's favorite band, and it's got goes through all the albums. It's 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 really kind of strange, actually. But uh, that's that's one. uh, It talks about one of the charts talks about all the instruments they used. That was one that uh, got uh, some advanced focus in one of the stories. But that's that's one. There's another one called Fab Four Mania by, by Carol Tyler that's coming out in June. That is a kind of a diary um, uh, of a, a 13-year-old girl talking about Beatlemania as it's happening, and that's kind of that looks to be a lot of fun. Um, there's a lot of period stuff in there, and that that looks to be like it's going to be a whole lot of fun. There are others too. There's uh, one called Robes of Silk, Feet of Clay, the true story, and I kid you not, the true story of a love affair with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. And by Judith Bork, B-O-U-R-Q-U-E. Hmm. And that's coming out in September. There's another one called Images of Broken Light by Michael DeLeo, uh, about uh, a novel about the days before the uh, the death of John Lennon. There's volume two of Ken Womack's uh, bio of George Martin called Sound Pictures. There's another one called Advertising Revolution, the story of a song from Beatles hit to Nike slogan by Alan Bradshaw and Linda Scott. There's the American version. I'm not sure if this came out in America before, but it's not It's not a new book per se. It's called The Making of John Lennon by Francis Kenney about the early days of John Lennon. I, um, there's at least one and probably more Yellow Submarine books coming out. And there is also the reissue of the complete Beatles recording sessions by Mark Lewison. And I asked him this week whether or not he, uh, this is a revised version or if it's the version that has been out previously. And he said, it's the revised version that's been out previously. He has nothing to do with this. He did say that there will be updates incorporated in, you know, in his, the upcoming uh, volumes of his Beatle biography, but he is not. This is not a revised version of that, and that will be out in September. So, okay, there's a few I have listed. Okay, uh, one of which is by Ray Connolly, hmm. called "Being John Lennon: A Restless Life," which is coming out in October. I don't have any information about what that book is about on John, 
Then there's also one called The Roof, The Beatles' Final Concert. That's by Ken Mansfield. That's the uh, Apple Records' former U.S. manager. And um, he brings an insider's perspective on the days leading up to the 42-minute concert. There is also there's already a rooftop book by somebody that I don't believe had any connection to it. Yeah. His right. name is, is uh, and, Tony Barrel. Right. And and there's been, <laughs> and there's that's been ironic. Discussion, yeah. And there's been <laughs> discussion online as to how much information new information he actually was able to get. I have not seen the book, so I don't know. But there is one out there already. But Ken's obviously would have a better you know, would be a Somebody who was there and who that's was, right. was he know, there? Who, yes, yeah. he was. Okay. He was. So and that book that book's coming out November thirteenth. And Ken and Ken's done other White albums uh, or uh, rooftop stuff before in his previous books, but this one specifically is about that. So um, also, get. Uh, uh, I was just going to say that um actually I I looked at the Tony Barrel book this afternoon i have have a copy i haven't had a chance to read it all yet but he he does talk about um having interviewed um apple secretary at the time and and someone from the who was one of the policemen at the time and so it, it i don't know you know had not having read it i don't know how much he got from them but it it does seem that he you know, did do some research and interviews so it okay. might be a, a different perspective from ken manfield's but um you know, if you're fascinated with the rooftop, now you have two books to read. True. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, also, I just want to make a quick mention that if we have any Smithereens fans listening, and I know we do, they will have a, a new CD coming out called Covers. And it's just a, a compilation of hit songs, mainly from the 60s. And there's a lot of Beatles songs that they cover. They also cover Ringo's It Don't Come Easy as well as uh, some songs from the Kinks and the Who and the Beach Boys. So that's late May and early June for that. Is this a compilation of stuff that was already out before, or is it stuff recorded um, ideally before Pat Denisio died? Oh, this was all before Pat died. But um, this is, as far as I know, I don't believe these have been released before. Oh, okay, great. Looking forward to it. All right. I just learned that that the... Beatles to Bond and Bach is a reissue. It's not something brand new. So Okay. And it's been available or it is available on C D? It's available on C D on Amazon. Okay. All right, very good. Okay, and there's one other uh release with at least some peripheral Beatles interest in that it has a Beatles song on it. And Ken, you want to tell us about that? Uh it's an album called Universal Love. Actually, let me clarify. We're not sure at this point if it's an EP or an album. But um, the whole idea behind this album is that it takes a lot of uh, classic love songs and wedding songs, and they're reimagined to be uh, inclusive of the LGBT community. So what you have on this compilation, you have Ben Gibbard, who is the lead singer of Death Cab for Cutie, he covers And I Love Her, but he sings it as And I Love Him. And so all the cover versions here on this song, they switch the pronoun so that it, um, you know, it's, it's more about per, a person of the same sex. So um, we've seen a listing for this as an EP, but I've also seen an article that it's an LP. So we're not totally sure at this point about it. But Ben Gibbard 
uh, did perform And I Love Him on Conan O'Brien just okay. recently. So it sounded pretty good, too, doing it. Okay. All right, so is that it for news? I think yes. so. Okay, so last week we uh, basically ran out of time by the time we got through um, Kit's um, Beatles picks of uh, underrated Beatles songs, and we still have the solo songs to do, which will be complicated slightly by the fact that Kit cheated by taking three Ringo songs. But she has a... <laughs> she has justification. Um, so... <laughs> So, um, why don't we start with, um, do you want to start with the Ringo songs, Kit? Oh, uh, sure, we could do that. Yep, now, yep, I, I swear I have justification for this, that I kind of view these songs as, as, you know, going together. And what I'm talking about is, I guess you could call it the, the Liverpool Trilogy, that uh, in in Ringo's most, uh, you know, recent uh, album, well, not most recent, but recent albums, he did a series of songs that were about growing up in Liverpool and, and his experiences. And what I find fascinating about them is they're certainly not all, you know, sunshine and, and unicorns. I mean, it's it's uh, sometimes a, a pretty honest look at, at uh, you know, growing up in Liverpool. Um, the first one he did, which is my personal favorite, is uh, Liverpool 8 which, uh, of course, he, he uh, co-wrote with uh, Dave Stewart of uh, the Eurythmics. And it's, you know, I, I think it's, uh, first of all, very catchy. I, I think the, the chorus, you know, just has a very catchy uh, melody to it. But also it's moving. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it's particularly in the chorus, saying that, you know, he had to leave, that, uh, you know, that he, destiny was calling. I just couldn't stick around Liverpool. I left you, but I never let you down. Um, I, I just think that's a very moving, uh, lyric. Um, and he goes, basically just tells the story about, uh, you know, playing with George and Paul and John and, and, you know, how hard they worked and all, but, uh, and then how they reached the top. But I think, you know, it's just wonderful, you know, at the end when he says, Liverpool, I left you said goodbye to Admiral Grove. Um, you know, and, I mean, it, they're just some wonderful references to, to Liverpool. So that's the, I, I'd say it's the song where he, he looks upon it more, you know, fondly. But then you get on the next album on Why Not, the other side of Liverpool. This is pretty different. You know, this is, again, this is not, not sunshine and, and rainbows. This is about, you know, wanting to get out of Liverpool, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> I mean, he says, you know, the the other side of Liverpool is cold and damp, only way out of their drums, guitar, and amp. So this isn't strictly about, you know, wanting to, you know, looking at it with nostalgia. I mean, he says, my mother was a barmaid at the age of three. My father was gone. You know, it, it, it's an un, more of an unvarnished look. Uh, and, and the first time I heard this song, I was just so struck by it. You know, I, I just thought, wow. I mean, he's really being brutally honest here. Mm-hmm. Um and I like the backing singer too. I, I like the uh, by uh, Cindy Gomez, I believe is is the name of the, the the female vocalist. I think she adds a little bit of bluesiness to it, which fits mm-hmm. in with the song. And then finally, we have uh, in Liverpool from uh, Ringo uh, 2012. This is a bit more back to the the nostalgic 
you know, look, uh, look back at, at Liverpool, you know, me and the boys, me and the gang living out our fantasies, breaking the rules, acting like fools. That's how it was for me. Um, you know, it's, uh, but, it, and, you know, we, and then uh, the other line I like too, the rain never stopped, but the sun always shone in my mind in, in Liverpool. So this is more of, I'd say, a combination, both of those songs that, you know, acknowledging, yes, there were dark times, but ultimately he still has fondness for it. Also rocks a little harder um, than, uh, than the previous songs, I think. And uh, I, I just thought it was a fascinating trilogy uh, looking back uh, at his life. Um, and and the you know multi-dimensional qualities of Liverpool. Mm-hmm. Interesting, very interesting. Ken, well, I I really uh, I've always appreciated those three songs from Ringo. I know that he said that he's been asked if he would ever write his own biography, and he's declined to do so because, according to him, most people only care about seven years of his life. So he wants to do his um, talk about his history or his life in song instead. It's just kind of ironic that all three songs here are about his childhood and the early years of the Beatles, because Liverpool 8 only takes you to Shea Stadium. Yeah. So, um, But the thing that I like about all three songs, and this you could say about Ringo's songs in general, is that his lyrics are very simple, but they're really heartfelt. And yeah. they, they, they're very powerful in their own way. I mean, you don't think of Ringo as a poet, but what he says can really grab you in the heart. And um, I love all three songs for that reason. You mentioned uh, a particular line in in, uh, the song in Liverpool, which I liked a lot. Me and the boys, me and the gang living our fantasies, breaking the rules, acting like fools. That's how it was for me. I also like how he asked, how was it for you? Yeah. (laughs) But... um, he also says in there, um, he brings up his apprentice engineer job, and then he mm-hmm. says, I had something very clear in my mind. Music was my goal in my heart and in my soul and in my mind. And um, it tells you a lot about him, that this was his love from the very beginning. And as he has said in many interviews, this is who he was. He was a musician. His goal in life was to make a living as a musician. He had no idea <laughs> where the road would lead with him. But um, all three songs are very special in their own way, and I'm glad that he's done them. Very interesting in a way that all three songs, coincidentally, were co-written with Dave Stewart. Yeah. And um, I would also point out, and I don't know if anybody else has even noticed this, but whenever I listen to In Liverpool, the melody in there kind of reminds me of Waterloo Sunset from The Kings. Hmm. If you listen very carefully, don't ask me to sing, <laughs> but if you play, if you play those two songs back to back, there's a similarity in there. Ooh, right. Okay. Give that Ooh. a try. All right. Yeah. <laughs> so Steve, I thought the idea of doing, doing the autobiographical songs was a, a good one. Mm-hmm. However, I don't, uh, he basically, you know, he basically did it as, as Kit said, as a substitute for writing a, a book. And even though he put out the picture book, which helped a little bit, uh, and he also had, and he also did the the uh, Grammy Museum exhibit, which contained a lot of stuff. I still wish we had something more, and I had, I wish he had gone a little further and even done, you know. Uh, even a film or something uh, and talked about uh, his earlier days. But um, 
I mean, be that as it may, I mean, it's it's great that he he did this, you know, as he did. Um, but I would really, I would, I mean, the songs themselves are great. I think my favorite is "Other Side of Liverpool." I'm not sure why, but but I really wish he had done something more. I think that I, I'm not going to say he dropped the ball because he obviously, I mean, it's up to he, he can do what he wants to do. But I really wish I would have loved to have heard his thoughts. Especially given his multifaceted career, you know, before the Beatles, and now what he's doing after, I, you know, I, I wish he had done that. But anyway, no, I and I agree. I think that's why I too. I mean, Liverpool Eight is probably my number one, but but other side of Liverpool is a very close number two mm-hmm. because it it is like you said, Steve. You know, you listen to that and you're like, boy, I'd love to hear more. You know, mm-hmm. I'd love to hear more about that side. You know of his, right. of how hard it was to, to you know growing up. So I you know I think that's part of the attraction we both have to that song. And I think I think he's gotten to the point where at this point in his life he doesn't feel like he has to, and that's understandable. Yeah. That's understandable. There was a time when he was partying around in in L.A. that maybe he he might have done it, but. Even then, I probably would have been more difficult at that point when he was, you know, hanging around with Harry. But, you know, he doesn't want to do it now, and that's fine. I just wish he, I just wish he had. Yeah. So, I kind of wish that on the flip side of what you were saying, he would write songs about his later life, not just his mm-hmm. early life and oh, the Beatles sure. years. Yeah. So there's this fascination there in his solo career and all the work that he's done and all the people he worked with. Hmm. That yeah, would be, that I don't would know. Be I, I I don't know that I'd want to necessarily see a, a you know my life in song over seventy five you know tracks. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but oh, he did. But he did go a little further as just um, Steve wanted. Um, he did do Rory in the Hurricanes as well. So you could actually right. have cheated even more and had four. Right. I almost okay. did. I almost did. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Good point. Very close. If he had only put Liverpool in the title of that one. <laughs> yeah, it would have been yeah. perfect. Yeah. So, you know, there, there, there is a fourth, a fourth early look at that period. Um, I, I could be wrong, um, but I seem to remember that when Liverpool 8 came out, the, the single and the album, um, Ringo got into some trouble with a British TV interview he gave where when they asked him about Liverpool or maybe whether he was going to go back to Liverpool because it was made this European city of culture that year or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And he said something like, oh, no, I, you know, I, I got out of there as soon as I could. And that got people in Liverpool really upset. Yes, it did. I yeah. remember that. And, that, and then, in fact, I remember the one, the one, uh, was it the, uh, the Bush sculpture, the, the, uh, the, Bush sculpture of the Beatles that got uh, and his head got chopped off. I think it was. Ooh. Yeah, that, that's oh. right. Right. So, so yeah. I mean, it it occurred to me, you know, listening to them, that perhaps the other side of Liverpool was almost a reaction to, you know, what what happened after Liverpool Eight came out, and he talked a little about it, and 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 he got so criticized, and it's as if he's saying, oh, oh you know what. I'll write a song about Liverpool, and it's the other side of it, okay? And, right. And that's yeah. what we have there. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And then maybe he felt better about that and uh, and, and decided to sort of write an, a nice one about Liverpool again. Uh, mm-hmm. But um, I was thinking when Steve was talking about, 
you know, him doing a book um, and then about possibly doing songs about later in his life, too. If he were to do that, I'm sure that Genesis Books would be happy to uh, do something like I Me Mine, where he's got the lyrics to all these songs and does commentary <laughs> under them. And that would that oh, would wow. sort of that would sort of serve your uh you fill your dream here, Steve, because it would yeah, be, you true. know, all of the songs about Liverpool and growing up and his whole life and however far he goes, plus explanations about what's behind the does, ideas does, in the songs. And, uh, yeah, but, you know, Genesis is still going on. And, in fact, oh, yeah. the Ringo's yeah. books, Ringo's books um, are from the post-Brian era. So, you know very possible hey. <laughs> if only he were willing and wrote yeah. all those songs that would make it possible um, yeah. that that would be a dream for me actually Whatever well let's go on to your poll choice and one thing that actually a couple of weeks ago i don't remember if it was on the show itself or when we were talking afterwards but ken mentioned that you actually got into the beatles because Paul worked with Michael Jackson, and you were into Michael Jackson first. Is that, is that right? True? Yeah, that's that um, is true. Yeah, it's it's kind yeah, of I'm, difficult for an old guy like me to imagine that. Um, yeah, well, <laughs> I was an '80s kid, you know. Same, same here. Kid. And uh, you know, I was an '80s kid, and you know, at, at the time it was you know early '80s. Uh, Michael Jackson was, of course, the biggest thing. And I mean, I, I'm going to say, I knew who Paul was. I knew who the Beatles were. It wasn't like it was completely foreign to me, but I didn't really get into his music until I remember Say, Say, Say came out and that made me buy Pipes of Peace. Uh-huh. And, yeah. uh, and then it all was all, you know, that was, I don't want to say all downhill from there because it was, it was all well, uphill from or there. Or you could say, <laughs> and now it's all this. <laughs> And now it's over. There you go. There you go. So maybe we should point out as well, since we didn't last week, we we mentioned your songs. We were singing book, but we didn't mention that you've also written the Michael Jackson fact. Yes, indeed, I have. Yeah. And it's a it's a look at at his just his music. It's not really a a biography. It's it's about his artistic career, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, career. So. Mm -hmm. And so your underrated Paul song is. It is um, Riding to Vanity Fair, uh, which, you know, to be honest, uh, Chaos and Creation in the Backyard was a, was a, an album I, I had to kind of warm up to it. I don't know why. Uh, there was just something about it that, that initially didn't click with me. But Riding to Vanity Fair, this just stood out for me. It just was so different from what Paul usually records. I mean, not that he always records, you know, coming up, but, uh, but he, this one, this one was just so dark, uh, mm. and, and highly personal. I mean, you could tell he wouldn't say who it was for, although he said, in, uh, I think it was an interview with Paul DeNoyer. It was not aimed at Heather. Um, and, and uh, so, Okay, um, so it was it was some other <laughs> it was some other friend of his, he said, and he wouldn't go any further than that. But interestingly, he claimed it was more about sorrow than anger. And I disagree. Uh, when you read some of the lyrics, I mean, you know, why pretend I think I've heard enough of your familiar song? 
uh, to tell you what I'm going to do. I'll try to take my mind off new. And now that you don't need my help, I'll use the time to think about myself. I mean, it's, it's uh, I don't know. And, and I'm saying you don't fool anyone. I mean, there's, there's some real anger uh, running uh, through the song. And it's just so unlike. Uh, but I like it because it does reveal a more personal side that I don't think he visits enough. Uh, you know, doesn't reveal, uh, you know, he tends to, you know, not uh, want to keep some things uh, uh, hidden. And um, the arrangement I like a lot. It's very moody and but sparse. Um, and, you know, his, his voice, like much of on, uh, Chaos and Creation, you know, his voice is right up front in the mix. I mean, you can, you know, he's almost right up to the microphone like he's, you know, it's like a conversation just all around i think this was a welcome uh break from from you know his usual um stuff which is great but uh but i just like this this difference in in sound and theme okay ken what do you feel oh i think this is a brilliant song and it's when i think of uh writing to vanity fair the word that comes to mind is haunting mm-hmm I don't know how anyone who listens to the words cannot think it's about Heather. And maybe Paul was saying what he did to protect her at the time. But um, it's just, they're highly personal. And it shows how he was hurt in a relationship. And for people who think that Paul doesn't bear his soul enough, you listen to a song like this and you wish that he would do more of it. You know, Paul tends to be very upbeat, very positive in life. And that's one of the things we love about him. That's how he is in his interviews. But once in a while, there are those very sad moments in his songs, and people are drawn to that. But this one, I mean, there's a lot of verses in here. Mm-hmm. It's not like uh, one of the, the shorter Beatles songs that are brilliant, like For No One or something like that. This one has a lot of verses, and it says a lot about this relationship. And it's very easy when you listen to these words to attach it or believe that it has to be about Heather. What was the, there was a line in here, the definition of friendship apparently ought to be showing support for the one that you love, and I was open to friendship, but you didn't seem to have any to spare while you were writing to Vanity Fair. I mean, there's some real powerful words in there, and just the very simple arrangement with those two notes that keep playing against, you know, that keep repeating throughout the song, it is, uh, it's very striking and very haunting to me. And um, it's its kind of tough to listen to if you're used to happy-go-lucky Paul. But um, I'm really glad that he put this one out. I, I do think the song is really brilliant. Okay, Steve? Interesting that, that uh, you guys seem to think it's, it's, uh, it's all about Heather. Um, in doing a little bit of looking around, one place I found thought it was about Jeff Baker, his former publicist. Mm. And that same place also, uh, in, a, in a, another paragraph, thought it might also be about John Lennon. So, uh, you know, it, uh, you could probably find, uh, you know, uh, you could probably interpret the, the lyrics, you know, many different ways. Yeah. But as far as the lyrics go, I mean, those are... The, those are not McCartney McCartney type lyrics. They're no. really, they're really really biting, and uh, I'm not used mm-hmm. to seeing not used to seeing that from Paul McCartney. Uh, and it's interesting. 
you know the fact that this one you know is not that not that well known it's kind of it's kind of weird that it isn't because it's so different i mean it reminds me of um how do you sleep you know it's mm-hmm. kind of that kind of that uh type of thing um but um i don't know it's 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 definitely unique let's put it that way so alan yeah, um, I sort of lean more towards the Heather interpretation, um, yeah. you know, keeping in mind it well, just because of that uh, verse about um, the definition of friendship apparently ought to be showing support for the one that you love. I mean, right. okay, you can, right. you can love your friend, but um, that seems to, you know, point that way. I mean, you can right. hear it as being about john but he's always maintained that that was a real friendship and so much of this is about how it this friendship turned out not to be a real friendship i kind of think that the john model doesn't fit mm-hmm. you know as andrew no, I, as they I, both got um yeah no i mean there's there I, no i agree that it, it it sounds a lot like heather i'm just saying that there are others out yeah. there that think differently yeah the you jeff know, I baker know. one i think may give Jeff Baker too much importance in his life. I don't know. Um, maybe they were tied at a certain point. Um, I mean, I know that when um, Jeff used to call me to uh, promote an interview for one of Paul's projects, he would say, oh, yeah, it's Jeff Baker. God wants to speak to you. <laughs> so, <laughs> he really? Yes, he really. Wow. <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> and that was about standing stone of all things. But um, anyway, wow. uh, yeah, it's um, I can totally understand, Kit, why it took you a long time to warm up to chaos and creation. I, I, I haven't got there yet. Um, it took me a long time, so you'll, you'll get there. <laughs> Maybe. (laughs) Um, But yeah, you know, this is, uh, this is, as everyone here seems to agree, a very unusual Paul McCartney song, because he does tend to be the sunnier, you know, one who, you know, the closest he's got to being critical of someone else in a song, I think is maybe too many people, you know? Um, And even that was done so poetically that you almost needed john to say in you know his rolling stone interview well what do you mean too many people going underground you know uh mm-hmm. <laughs> took your mm-hmm. little break and broke it in two what are you saying there paul you know i mean right. I'm, I'm not sure that i necessarily would have heard it as an attack on john without reading john's interpretation of it but maybe i would have i don't know um john yeah. did make a you know did actually bring more attention to that aspect of it than the song itself did but this, yeah, this is right out there, and it is unusual. And I think anything on Chaos and Creation is could probably almost fit into the overlooked category. So, yeah. um, except for maybe Fine Line, maybe. Except yeah. for Fine Line, yeah, maybe. Only because that was the single. Yeah. Only because, yeah. Yeah. You yeah. know, one one thing I think that maybe the key for the interpretation of the song is riding to Vanity Fair. Those that phrase. Yeah. And and I mean we could sit here and speculate what, what exactly that means, but I think that's probably the key, you know, rather than the, a lot of the rest of the lyrics. But. Yeah, because it doesn't seem to make sense if you know it so it yeah. has to mean something. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. 
unless simply the word vanity in there is a, you know, he's using it that way and decided to sort of make it into Vanity Fair. You, you know, we could be. We don't know. But. <laughs> could be. I, I kind of interpret it as meaning while you are on your way to becoming more famous, mm. you know, oh. hmm. you know. So you're so you're falling into the Heather you're falling into the Heather interpretation. Well, I've always believed that it was. Okay. But until until Paul admits it, we can't say 100 percent for be, certain. Could be Eric Stewart or Elvis Costello. Yeah. <laughs> well, there you go. Mm. Let's start some rumors, man. I think I think I think we need to do a third episode where we just take this whole thing apart. And, okay. You know, <laughs> there we go. There we go. Okay. <laughs> Um, so shall we go to your John solo selection? Sure. Uh, this one, yeah, and I'm trying to remember, I, I had a conversation about this song with somebody and, and I, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a song that some people love, some people don't, um, uh, from Imagine, I Don't Want to Be a Soldier. And I like it for the very reason that this friend of mine didn't, which is it's a little sloppy, you know, like it's, it's a little... It, it's not as polished as, say, Imagine. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it has a looser jam kind of feel to it, and that's what I like. It's it's uh, uh, it just sounds so different than a lot of the other uh, tracks on that album. Um, it's it's gritty. It's 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 you know bluesy, and uh, you know I I just think even though the lyrics, I mean they're they're fairly simple in a way. I mean if they were just sort of I believe they were just sort of improvised in, in a way around this jam. But, you know, it's, it's interesting how the song progresses when he sings, oh, I don't want to be a soldier, mama. I don't want to die. I don't want to be a sailor, mama. I don't want to fly. I don't want to be a failure, mama. I don't want to cry. I don't want to be a soldier. I mean, it's, it's just interesting to see where he goes uh, with, and, and we could probably go to town analyzing this as well. But, uh, but I, I just think it's... Um, you know, it's fighting great vocal performance from him, too, mm-hmm. I think. You know, he just... And the, the uh, Flux Fiddlers, uh, I like that kind of shaky kind of string, you know, this, the when the shaky strings come in. Uh, you know, it adds a little more tension to the song. Um, you know, it's... it's You know, John is, is both... I, he's not raging angry. I mean, it's not how do you sleep. You know, it's not on that level. But uh, but it's obviously, I mean, he's he's protesting, um, you know, uh, Vietnam or however you want to, uh, however you want to interpret it. But it it just has this, as I said, this sloppy quality to it that I I just love, and it's you know a rant against expectations of society. Oh, and King Curtis, of course, playing mm-hmm. sax solo. Uh, before he died, great solo. Um, you know, it just pierces through the the, the noise, and it's um, uh, yeah. There, I mean, gosh, all star group here: Nicky Hopkins, Joey Mullen, Klaus Vormann, Jim Keltner. I mean, it's 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 just a star wine. Oh, and George Harrison, of course, on his guitar. Tom yeah. Tom Tom Evans, Mike P- Mike Pinder, Mike Pinder. Yep. Yep. I mean, on tambourine, know, right. Yeah, I mean, what a what a top uh, you know jam session here. And then about... and and you've got Phil Spector doing the Wall of Sound. That means... Yes, that's right. And so I I just think even though it's it's not as polished, I I, I just think it has its own resonance, uh, and I've always gravitated toward it. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Ken? This is a song that took me the longest time to appreciate because it it was. 
it's atypical yeah. of John Lennon's music. I mean, what I what I like about it now is that, as you said, Kit, it's loose. It is a jam. It's so it's kind of improvisational, and most of John Lennon's solo work from Imagine on or Plastic Ono Band on is structured, you know. And um, when I think about this, I think about like when. John and Yoko and uh, Frank Zappa did well, baby, please don't go. And it was like a loose jam or the stuff that that John did with Yoko. You know, don't worry, Mm -hmm. Kyoko and the live stuff right there. The fact that, you know, it's not what you're used to hearing from John. It goes on for about five, six minutes. And like you said, the the star studded cast, George Harrison doing the slide guitar. I, I like it now more for that reason. Mm-hmm. It just sounds very different from most of John Lennon's solo work. So I appreciate it more now for that reason. But it was one of the few, you know, there's only that one and, and uh, Angela, which I know I said before on this show is like the only song from John I don't really care for too much mm-hmm. in his solo career. But uh, it was this one for a while, but now I've really grown to like it and look mm-hmm. at it in a different way. Yep. Uh Steve? The one thing that's always hit me about the song is the is the grittiness of it. Mm-hmm. It's it's uh, you know John's songs were generally, and I and I use I guess I have to say that generally because you can probably come up with a few that aren't, but generally they were relatively you know polished, relatively studio. No, I wouldn't say studio slick, but they were you know you could tell they were. He didn't generally like things that were that loose i know you guys use the term loose but he generally had the whole thing together and this one is one of those songs where it just kind of it's it's very gritty and very and, and it is loose loose i guess is a good term to use i'm not sure if if it's one of my particular favorites i do like the lyrics though um i i you know um reminds me of you know plastic ono band how personally got there and so, but uh, and of course, and mentioning all those people that were on there, I, Mike Pinder. I mean, Mike Pinder, um, one of the Moody Blues played on there. Uh, you know, two members of Badfinger, Klaus. I'm sorry, Klaus, Klaus was on there. Um, I mean, King King Curtis. I mean, that that's fantastic. Uh, yeah. So, but um, yeah, I mean, it, you know, for that for the fact that it's a kind of a loose song, and it's kind of gritty. Um, it's it, it's a good song. Okay, yeah, I think um, apart from the fact that probably the King Curtis was an overdub, I think we heard enough of the uh, of that on the Lost Lennon tapes to know because there were several attempts at, at his solo. But leaving that aside for a minute and 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 imagining that they actually played this sort of loose jammy piece together in a room which you know probably the basis of it was i kind of think it had to be really a trip to be sitting in that room listening to that jam it just has that kind of quality where you know that it just would have been an enveloping sound simple as the song is and i think that the recording too a really good degree captures that, you know, it's not mm-hmm. quite the same as sitting in there, but we're not going to have that opportunity. Um, mm-hmm. Even if we develop time travel, I, th- I think that as a song on one hand, uh, for me, there's an association between 
I don't want to be a soldier and I want you. She's so heavy. I mean, they're very different songs in every way, but they both, you know, are very repetitive um, and go on for quite a while, maybe more than the material can sustain. And yet that creates a kind of hypnotic atmosphere that keeps you enveloped in it, you know? Um, Mm. So, um, otherwise, as a song, I mean, I kind of think it it almost belongs more on um, sometime in New York City. You know, I mean, thematically it fits. It's it's an anti-war protest song. And uh, uh, although I I imagine if he did it on sometime in New York City, it, it would have been on like an acoustic guitar and, you know, maybe less jammy. But, uh, yeah, okay, it's a, a, a... Interesting. That is very interesting. Yeah. I, I like how, how you compared that with I Want You, She's So Heavy. Yeah, um, that did not occur to me, but it makes sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. it does. Although I Want You, She's So Heavy is so much more a tighter recording, mm-hmm. so... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's structured differently, and it's more developed in a lot of ways, Um but but still, I don't know why, for some reason, those two songs seem to go together for me. I don't know why. Okay. That yeah. leaves us with George Harrison's solo. Yes, indeed. And uh, I'm going to say, uh, I'm going to use a word to describe uh, George in this that I think probably not many people would use normally, which is funky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 You don't really think of George Harrison as being funky, but uh, but this is uh, "Woman, Don't You Cry for Me" from, by the way, my my probably my favorite George Harrison solo album, other than "All Things Must Pass" thirty three and a third. I love that album. Hard to pick one song from that album, but I picked this one because it is such a departure from for George, even though George you know was certainly a devotee of R and B. I mean, you know, you can tell from. Um, Beatle days, and and he's talking. To, I mean, you know, gosh, one of, of course, one of the the songs, you know, pure Smokey. I mean, he's, mm-hmm. you know, he's clearly versed in R and B, but he didn't visit it as much uh, as he should have, I I think. And uh, and Woman, Don't You Cry for Me is an as an example. I mean, just from the moment it starts with that funky Willie Weeks bass. Oh, I mean, he, that is so good. Mm. Um, you know, you just think this is a George Harrison song. You know, I mean, then the, when the guitars come in. Uh, it sounds a bit, you know, a little twangy, and so it sounds a little more uh, like a George song. But it's it's just such a, a really cool departure. Um, he uh, apparently wrote it while he was on that Delaney and Bonnie uh, tour. Uh, in fact, um, uh, Delaney uh, Bramlett handed him a, a bottleneck slide guitar at one point, and he began to play around with it. And apparently, that's how he started, you know, toying with the idea of the song. And uh, it's it's just uh, an amazing jam session. And and by the way, as we talked about, you know, the great players on uh, "I Don't Want to Be a Soldier," you had some great ones on here too. Tom, the great Tom Scott uh, is, is on here. Uh, Willie Weeks, as I mentioned, I found that David Foster was on this. I'd forgotten that uh, when he was back when he was a you know a studio musician. Uh, mm. Before he really became known as a producer, but um, I just think the lyrics are very interesting. I mean, he throws in occasional spiritual references in there. I mean, you know, there's just one thing I got to see. That's the Lord. Got to keep him in sight. I mean, he throws that in, but but uh, you know, a lot of it is is just you know, kind of a you know, 
I'm trying to think of how to phrase it, but but sort of a breakup song in a way. Um, and uh, it's it's just in, interesting. I mean, in some ways, the, even the opening lines, I'm going to leave you here, I'm going to leave you at the station. I don't know, a little bit uh, one after 909-ish, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> perhaps uh, going back to that. But I just love the, the just, as I said, the, the difference in, in style. It's just something that George did not do. Uh, very often, and and I wish he had he'd gone uh, and done it more. And his vocals are terrific on this, by the way. Uh, you know, he can he can carry off his own brand of funk. <laughs> it's it's really uh, impressive. So this has been just a personal favorite of mine. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay, Ken. Well, oddly enough, Kit, funky is a word that I've described several times on the radio for some of George's music. This is definitely one of them. I I always think of Wreck of the Hesperus as being very, very funky. Maya Love falls into that category for me. But I've always loved this song, and it's one of my all-time favorite opening tracks for any album. The way that the drums kick in from Alvin Taylor. And um, it is kind of different in the lyrics, as you were saying, um, you know, about dumping this woman, you know, having no feelings for her, you know, doesn't want mm-hmm. attachment. So different from everything else that George writes about. Has a very different feel to it. I love it for that reason. And a lot mm-hmm. of slide guitar work throughout the song, you know, mm-hmm. and um, good opening upbeat number. And uh, interesting to note that he was considering uh, having this song on All Things Must Pass. He was yeah. working the song at that time, and there's an early version of it that's on Early Takes, Volume 1, which has different lyrics, too. Yep. Not nearly as developed as it is on 33 and a third, but yeah, it's really an outstanding track. I think if he wrote it on the Delaney and Bonnie tour, it could be mm-hmm. Patty. Mm-hmm. You know, that's one of the theories, yeah. That's one of the theories behind it. Yeah, and that's a little atypical for him in the way that the you know writing to Vanity Fair is atypical for Paul. You know, he's he never really overtly said very much about that relationship, other than you know we were both done. You know, so yeah, I mean it, it could just be, of course, a song about nobody in particular. Um, I think the spiritual aspect you mentioned may be less. George Harrison's spirituality, you know, as we know it <laughs> through a lot of his work, than a sort of reflexive gospel, gospel spirituality, just because the song is so bluesy at mm-hmm. heart that, you know, blues and gospel sort of go together in a way, and, and, and lines True. like that are, are pretty typical in, you know, in, in sort of certain kinds of blues. I wasn't crazy about the produced version of the track on the album. Now that the first takes version is out, I like that much, much better just because, you know, he's playing an acoustic guitar and he's playing it in a really interesting, intricate way. Um, Mm -hmm. I I just love the playing on that acoustic demo. Um, But yeah, it's funky and it's, you know, it's it's a certain kind of thing that, you know, is <laughs> well. I get into this a lot, and Ken and I always disagree. But but it it, it sounds to me like the production of its time. That mm-hmm. um, I I kind of suspect that if he were revisiting that album now, it might have a lighter touch. Hmm. Interesting. But 
maybe hmm. not. Instead, yeah. maybe not. Um, I, 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 I think, I think again, going back to the to, uh, I don't want to be a soldier. This is, you know, very atypical George Harrison, and I like it. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, so it's lighthearted. I mean, it, and I would put my money that probably it does have something to do with Patty, but at the same time, it's also so lighthearted. If it was about Patty, it would be, you know, it, it doesn't sound like the George that we all think we know, which we may not know in the first place. But I do like it. It's it's a it's a great song. Um, it's, you know, like I said, it's very lighthearted. That's about all I can say. It's 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 just well done. Uh, so. and, and I just want to mention, I, um, uh, Ken made a really good point, too. Yeah, really one of the best album opening tracks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of, of the solo. I mean, it was just from the moment you you hear that, you just think this is going to be a, a, a special album. I mean, there's just something about it, you know, the way it's it just. I mean, it starts even though the lyrics aren't exactly upbeat <laughs> in a way. Mm. I mean, you know, as soon as you're as you said, the drums and then the bass kick in, it, it just grabs your attention immediately, and you just think this is going to be an interesting lesson. You know, right. and uh, so yeah, yeah I, I I just thought that was a really good point. Just a, that was a a genius opening track. Really fits, mm-hmm. just perfect. You know, yeah. in that role. Mm-hmm. Okay, so those were all of the solo songs, right? We didn't miss anything, did we? Nope, that was nope. it. That was it. Right. Okay. And that brings us to the end of another episode of Things We Said Today. And it's been great hearing Kit's choices for overlooked tracks for both the Beatles last week and the solo Beatles this week. And it's um, given us a chance to sort of revisit these tracks and think about them uh, in a different way. And um, I've enjoyed hearing the other three of you, uh, your opinions, um, which you know, may have changed my mind about a couple of things too. And I hope that it's the same for our listeners. Uh, So you can reach us at, uh, if you want to send us an email, which we always read and try when we can to respond to, we have an email address, things we said today, radio show at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter with the at symbol things we said fab We have a Facebook page, Things We Said Today, Beatles Radio Fans. And you can reach Steve at... BeatlesExaminer at gmail.com. And I have a Facebook Beatles news page called Beatles News and Information that uh, everybody is welcome to join. Okay. And Kit, how can people reach you? Uh, You can reach me through my website, uh, kiddotool.com. You can also reach me on Twitter, uh, at Kiddo Tool and on Facebook, and the page is called Kiddo Tools Keynotes. So, Ken, how do people reach you? You can always email me at everylittlething at att.net, and uh, my website is kenmichaelsradio.com. A couple of things I want to mention very quickly. I did an interview with Jude Kessler, who's known for her series of narrative books on John Lennon, and we talked about pretty much the same thing we talked about on these last two shows, overlooked songs 
from John Lennon's career in particular, and we discuss a few of his Beatles songs and a few of his solo songs, and that's right there on my website. And don't forget, I'm continuing this week with my special contest in which you can win two of Kiddo Tools books, songs who are singing guided tours through the Beatles' lesser-known tracks, and her book on Michael Jackson called Michael Jackson FAQ, plus a Kiddo Tool tote bag. And that's all on my website. And uh, find out all the details right there on the homepage at KenMichaelsRadio.com. That's it. And you can reach me through Facebook at either Alan Cozen or Alan Cozen Remixed. So for Ken Michael, Steve Marinucci, and Kid O'Toole, uh, this is Alan Cozen saying thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.